0: For the week of June 27th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we have an in-depth conversation with Democratic congressional candidate Tola Martz, and we will, of course, have our dose of good news along with this week's call to action. My guest this week is Issaquah City Councilmember Tola Martz, who has recently announced his candidacy for Congress, running as a Democratic challenger to. Dave Reichert in the 8th District. And Tola has a pretty fascinating backstory. So, in addition to his work on the Issaquah City Council, where he has served since 2009, he has worked in aerospace here in the state since 2003, meaning that, yep, he is quite literally a rocket scientist. And more recently, he's worked on what's called humanitarian technology, traveling to sub-Saharan Africa to develop a specialized insulator for vaccines. So... I figured it was a natural place to start our discussion by asking about how all that experience informs his work in politics.
1: So I think that what you find as a scientist is you test hypotheses because there is uh, objective reality out there and you have to figure that out and you have to deal with it and you have to plan for it accordingly. And I Mm -hmm. think politicians, uh, you can be aspirational, you can explain things to people, you can create... um, enthusiasm for an idea but you fundamentally have to be part of reality and one of the nice things about city council is you know we can't run a deficit over time you have to balance your budget every single year and so there are just hard truths that you have to accept and Issaquah is in great shape and you know a lot of cities would love to have our problems Um, but we have challenges every year you know there's things that people want to do that we can't afford and we have to say no to and so I think that's probably the, the single biggest piece of it is I just have a finely honed sense of reality and politics is that which, you know, is the art of the possible, right? And right. so you can have all sorts of fancy ideas. If you can't pay for it and you can't convince voters why it's important, then you can't do it.
0: So rolling all that experience together, what was the – the I guess the tipping point that made you decide to throw your head into the ring to run for uh, for Congress?
1: Well, like a lot of people, I was uh, pretty disenchanted with the election last fall. Uh But I thought (laughs) it's okay. We live here in Western Washington. You know, things are good here. We're, you know, things are fine around here. And then I, uh, you know, I started realizing that things are not fine around here. And there were a couple of things in particular that that bothered me a lot. One was that there was a uh, vandalism at the Muslim Association in Puget Sound. Uh, up in Redmond, and yeah. they're wonderful folks up there. And there are actually two vandalisms there. And I went to the rededication of their sign and, and got to know some of those folks up there. And then followed right on the heels of that was a, uh, uh anti-Semitic graffiti at Temple to Her Sinai, which, because of the maps thing, I'd gotten to know... Um, uh, Rabbi Wiener at Temple to Hirsch Sinai was a great guy and involved in all sorts of interfaith activity. And so those things just really shook me and made me realize that, you know, there's no place that's safe right now. Yeah. That we really have to look. Uh, we have to Get engaged, and I needed to do more personally to get engaged.
0: So, on your website, you talk about your platforms of that you want to focus on as being healthcare, the environment, and education. Uh, and I, I, want to get into those uh, in depth. But I'd like to start by talking about the first thing you see on your campaign homepage. You say, "quote I worry that America is standing as a place where dreams can happen and opportunity." Uh, can be
1: seized is slipping tell us specifically what you mean by that well that's really the the fundamental issue i think the education and healthcare and the environment are sort of the the first three major issues that pop up from that but i think fundamentally what we've seen in the last few years is people look around and they just feel like the future of their communities is in doubt people think you know, what's what's life going to be like for my kid? What's life going to be like for my community? And they don't have confidence. And I think one of the challenges challenges we saw in the 2016 election is the kind of folks who read uh, HuffPo and the kind of folks who read Slate and Salon. You know, our lives are, are, are pretty good. And, you know, a lot of those folks. Uh, are part of economies that have to do with international trade. And so international trade looks good to those folks. And what we saw was there was a majority of Americans who just didn't feel that way. They felt a lot more concerns. They manifested in a bunch of different ways, right? Um, The the strength of the Sanders campaign um, as well as the eventual victory of uh, Donald Trump. I think really came down to people feeling like uh they were their concerns were not being addressed in the political process. And I I think Democrats and progressives do address those concerns, but I think oftentimes we're not very good at talking about it. We're not we're not necessarily great at listening and we're not great at communicating back. What we've heard, and so that's fundamentally what I want this campaign to be about is I'm going to go from you know the southwest corner of the district, which is like Bonnie Lake sure. uh, all the way up to uh Chelan and, and beyond, and I'm going to make sure that I know uh, the issues that are most important all over the district, uh, not just here in Issaquah and not just in uh sort of traditional democratic areas, um, so that when the time comes for the election, I can make it clear that I'd be able to well represent folks here in in Washington.
0: And I do want to get into how you're specifically doing that because this is a unique uh, district. This is the first time that district has ever spanned the Cascades, making it a real challenge, um, I I would imagine, for anybody who is trying to – put all the pieces together and represent a district that is intentionally diverse in that way. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to first talk about health care because it's a front burner issue for everyone right now. Uh, At the time of this recording, the bill that has come to be known as Trump Care is in the Senate. But I'm interested in your take on Dave Reichert's, let's call it,
1: activity uh, as the bill made its way through the House. Well... First of all, of course, in House ways, it means he voted for it and he said it wasn't going to cut anyone's health care. And then the CBO numbers came out and (laughs) he realized that that was not at all true. Uh, It was a a poor thing, I think, for him to say. Uh, And in the end, of course, he he voted uh, against the bill on the House uh, floor. But he really sort of did the minimal amount you could in a situation like that. Like I've heard him explain his vote. And I think if you're a leader and you think a bill is bad, you say something about it. And, you know, he sort of sent out a press release the same day that was pretty quiet and it was sort of, you know, don't vote for this bill. And it wasn't, you know, if he thought it was a bad bill, if he thought his fellow Republicans shouldn't have voted for it, he should have said something. He should have stood up and provided that sort of leadership. And I I don't think he did.
0: How in the position of being a representative from the state of Washington would you envision an ideal health care system? It's a big pie in the sky question, but I'm just curious to get an idea of how you would see it uh, in an ideal
1: scenario. Sure. sure. So let me first address the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is you know, does candidate March say single payer or not single payer? Is he going to use the term single payer? Because as you and I both know, in Democratic circles right now, there are people, there will be people who that's all they want to hear in the answer. It's a gold right? standard for them. Sure. To me, it's about access to affordable health care, and I think the Ameri- the Affordable Care Act is uh, is has been a great step. In the right direction. I think there's things that can be fixed in it. I think progressives understand that it's not perfect. Um, But I think we start with uh, all the folks that it's given health care to and make sure that all those folks stay having access to health care. And then you improve upon it. For me, access to affordable health care. is is the gold standard. And whether that's single-payer or not, I don't particularly care. I mean, the the Germans have a great system. It's a non-profit system, but it's not single-payer. The Japanese have a great system. It's also non-profit, um, and it's it's also not single-payer. I want to take the best solutions that are out there. Um, We're not going to... We wouldn't be able to go to single-payer in 2018 no matter what happens in the House because we don't have a president that would support it. Um, But we can improve upon ACA. And and think we will, particularly if we retake the House.
0: Yeah. Uh, You're an engineer, so it's logical that you've made climate change a core issue. Uh, We have an administration that is bent on rolling back everything from the EPA to the Paris Climate Accords. Um, So, again, hypothetically, the Dems take the House in 2018. Please, God, let the Dems take the House in 2018. How do you envision pushing back legislatively
1: against the Trump agenda on climate Sure. Well, first off, we have to acknowledge that uh, climate change is settled science. I mean, it's uh, there is no vast cabal of climatologists out there suppressing information. If there were, if there were some brilliant researcher at you know BYU who had come up with great data that said that somehow global warming wasn't happening, uh, that person would get instant tenure and fame and fortune in their school. And no such data exists. The world is getting warmer. People disagree about how pervasive that will be and what the impacts will be. It's known that it's going to be warm enough that, for instance, crops that grow well in central Washington today won't grow well down the road. I think everybody on the dry side of the past takes a look at, at the, the snowpack every spring. And, you know, if that snowpack's not there, then the whole system of, of irrigation that they use in Kittitas and Chelan counties goes out the window. And right. farmers are in a horrible situation. And yeah, are there other crops they can grow? Maybe, um, but maybe not. And maybe that's a permanent uh, change in in the way people get to live their lives. Just for and that's a that's a that's one of the smaller effects. This is not talking about sea states rising and and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, these are all impacts that are going to be coming from global warming. So so what can you do about it? Uh, there's a lot of things. I think that one of the things that needs to happen is that uh, we do need to look at what the economic impacts of various solutions are. I think people are concerned that uh, you can't just be single issue on almost anything. You have to come up with solutions that work across the board. And so one of the things that I would look for is what are the solutions that have the most impact um, from a climate standpoint, and are neutral or beneficial on an economic standpoint. And in an area, we're fortunate in the Pacific Northwest in that we're leaders of uh, alternative energy, and we have great... Facilities in Washington state, some of the best wind turbines in the United States are made up in sort of the cedro Woolly area because, as it turns out, that the same technology to make boat hulls is useful in making wind turbine blades. And so there's uh, incredibly brilliant engineers up there. And I would, li- I would love to bring some of that industry into the 8th. Uh, we already have wind farms in the eighth. We already have amazing hydropower in the eighth. Um, so we've got a good starting point, and I think that that's a way that you can come up with solutions that are beneficial, at least neutral, if hopefully beneficial, economically to a local area. Because I think the challenge is people just hear, you know, carbon tax or whatnot, and and there are economic uh, implications there. I mean, it, it does have it does have an effect on economies, and and so. My hope is to start. Let's start preferentially with the solutions that uh, allow us to build economically in our state, but also address global warming.
0: At the top of your legislative uh, priorities is education. Uh, And you say one of the first pieces of legislation that you will propose is making two years of community college free for all Americans. Um, This will make an enormous impact, obviously. Um, Funding is an issue. Uh, Taxation is the third rail of politics. Nobody wants to talk about raising taxes, and yet... uh, As we've seen with the experiment going on in Kansas right now, where they have cut taxation to virtually zero, the state is rather predictably going bankrupt. Uh, How do you view taxation, particularly as it's used to fund things like education and social programs?
1: Sure. Well, education in particular uh, is has been shown to be one of the best investments a government can make. I mean, the reason we have a public education system, there's a number of reasons, right? Some are philosophical, but some are extremely practical. I mean, I come from a state, Minnesota, where you can't generally get people to move there because there's six months of winter. So if you don't have a good public education system, you don't get engineers, you don't get physicians. Now, in the Pacific Northwest, we're lucky enough that people are willing to move here Lucky is, I guess, one way to put it. Uh, everybody wants to move here. Um, that's not true in every corner of the eighth, right? Um, in various parts of the eighth, you, you, you also need to home grow uh, your uh, technicians, your uh, tradesmen, uh, or, or you don't get those things. And so I see education as an investment. Right now we make an investment through 12th grade. And we say that's the role of government, and we're all okay with uh, spending the money that's necessary to do that. I think we have to go just one tick further. Um, I think we need to help people get that first foot out the door. And, you know, I say community college there. It's really community or technical college or trade school. But, you know, we as a country sort of tell people everybody needs to go to college. You Go to the U or go to Wazoo or wherever. But um, I think the reality is for some folks a great job would be being a painter at Boeing. Right, mm-hmm. and and I think what we do as part of that investment in young people, and this is again in from Bonnie Lake to to Shilland to Covington to Black Diamond to Clealm. Um, I think we say the role of government is to help get that first foot out the door. And are you going to go into a trade or are you, are you going to go to college? Um, one of the nice things about community college and colleges and technical colleges is they're really inexpensive. Right. You know, in some senses, they can be less expensive even than high schools. Right? So in from term-
0: a taxation point, how would you uh, develop revenue in order to, to pay for that? Because, it, yeah, it's, it's absolutely worthwhile. I think the statistics bear it out. So,
1: yeah, how do you pay for it? Um, I think you look at – there's four or five states already that are doing this. And I actually have – I have a little brother in, in Georgia and he did the – hope he got the HOPE grant, which was a grant system that they put together in Georgia 15, 20 years ago that basically says if you maintain be average and you don't have any – I think drug convictions uh, they 'll basically pay for your schooling to go to a public school, and this is open to every student in georgia and it 's worked really well and it 's helped build georgia 's uh, uh, intellectual capital if you will and so that 's one option i think there's like i said there's something like four others right now, and uh, I would take a look at how those are funded it 's still a challenge i't have all the i don 't have all the details figured out. Uh, you obviously have to be at least revenue neutral and and, and figure these things out but as an investment um, I think that it, it sort of qualifies in a different category than some other ways that we spend money because education is so well-identified as a, as a good investment for communities.
0: And particularly here in Washington, I think people really value and understand uh, the value of a good education. I mean, if you look at the major industries uh, in, in Western Washington in particular, you see a lot of engineering. You see Boeing. You see Amazon. You see, a pl- you see places where you, know, you understand that there is, if you have a solid education, in the STEM
1: uh, fields, like you do, you have virtually limitless possibilities. I, I think though as a, as a state we've had some challenges and I, I think that part of a federal response is to is to, sh- is to address the fact that um, you know McCleary shows that Washington State has had challenges funding uh, basic education and I think that a lot of those industries you mentioned have thrived partially on the immigrant, uh, you know, people coming to the state from not not even from overseas, but people like myself from the Midwest and people from the East Coast. And I think that that works well because you can get people to move to Issaquah and Bellevue and places like that. But I think that um, McCleary hits a lot harder in places like Covington and Black Diamond and – Chelan and Elum and Ellensburg. And that's uh, a place where
0: technical educations might make a difference if they were publicly
1: funded. Right. Yeah. So we've
0: talked about this uh, a little bit uh, already, but the 8th District is unique. It has been gerrymandered to make it favorable to, well, Dave Reichert and the Republicans in general. Um, the parts of the district west of the Cascades uh, are predictably more democratic, um, But... You've touched on it a little bit, but I want to go into depth. What's your strategy for the parts of the district in the east that traditionally
1: vote more Republican? How how do you plan on connecting with those voters? Sure. First of all, I think the redistricting only made the district slightly more Republican. I, I being an engineer, I made a spreadsheet. I, I went back. <laughs> I looked precinct by precinct. I made it, I think it made it one to two percent more conservative. Which look is I wish it. I wish they hadn't made it one to two percent more. But I think when you talk about this district, you have to acknowledge that. Um, Dave Reichert has never faced, it, never faced an elected official. Uh, he's never faced anybody who had a ton of political connection into the district. And I think, that'll, I think that can make for a very, very different election. You know, he, he chose 10 years ago to stop debating his opponents, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think that's a travesty. And I think that my being in this race, if I'm successful, I think I can help make sure that he has to come debate and defend his record. Uh, Having been an elected official, I think that it's a... uh, I think he should have debated all of his opponents, but particularly, you know, when Susan Del Bene ran in 2010. She ran a great campaign and he refused to debate her. And I just... I, I find that unconscionable, but in terms of um, how do i how do I connect with voters on the east side or on the on the dry side, I should say first of all i 've started doing it already uh, mm-hmm. I spent a decent amount of time out there. I was actually in Ellensburg last night uh, I went down to we went over there to have dinner at a restaurant that a couple of people on the Ellensburg City Council had got me into um, but i 've already started spending time over there've met with some of the indivisible folks over there met with some of the Democrats over there. Uh, starting to get my arms around some of the issues that are unique uh to Ellensburg and to that side of the of the district, uh, I am told that Reichert just doesn 't spend any time out there unless it 's for fundraisers so um people in the district are going to get to know me you know when people ask why are you running seventeen months <laughs> ahead of the election it 's so that I can get to every town in in the district and so that you know I want. When somebody says, Total yeah, I met him at, at the local bar. I met him at the local library or whatever, wherever it is, and I want people to know that I know what's important to the district. And I think that sort of block and tackling is really critical uh, to running – Not just to running a campaign, but ultimately this is about can you go to Washington and represent the folks in your district? And you just – you can't possibly do that unless you know the people in your district and and what their critical issues are.
0: Certainly sounds like you are out there doing the legwork. Uh, We're going to take a quick break for our call to action, and then we'll be back with Total Marts. Time now for this week's call to action. But first, our dose of good news, which, hey, for today's episode, they're one and the same. So, as you know, podcasts don't always happen in real time, but I am happy to report that as of today, the recording, the release, Tuesday, June 27th, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has postponed his vote on the Trump Care Bill, aka the AHCA, because, well, turns out there just weren't enough Republican votes for it. Why is that, you might inquire? Well, Part of it had to do with the fact that the CBO score came out on Monday saying that some 22 million people would lose their coverage under the new plan, with some 15 million people losing coverage next year alone. But most of it had to do with the absolutely relentless pressure that people just like you have been putting on our senators. So here in Washington, because of our phone calls encouraging them, both of our senators felt emboldened to take strong stances and even hold the floor in protest of the bill. And across the country, Indivisible groups pressured their Republican senators very effectively, particularly in states like Nevada, where Dean Heller said that he would not support it, and also in Maine, where Susan Collins said she wouldn't do it either. And then, of course, after McConnell announced his decision to postpone, a number of other senators have expressed their doubts as well, again, due in large part to increased pushback and phone calls. And so for our call to action. Now, you may have already seen what Indivisible co-founder Ezra Levin has said in his email about next steps but if you have not here is the game plan first he says well first he says celebrate so hey bottoms up uh next because both of our senators really did step up in this let's call and thank them for standing with us uh but of course this fight is not over uh you guys remember all those zombie trump care jokes well turned out they were kind of prophetic so few other things that we can do here in Washington. First of all, while most Republican senators will be reluctant to hold town halls over the Fourth of July recess, that doesn't mean people can't take to the streets. If you happen to be planning on going to a state with a Republican senator over the holiday, check with the local indivisible groups there to see what they may have planned and go and attend. Also, if you know people in states with Republican senators, see if you can get them to make a couple phone calls. And I know you've heard this before, but I will stress that calls from residents here to other states are not advised. And finally, after you have thanked our senators, let them know that we absolutely support them doing whatever it takes to finish off this disaster of the health care bill once and for all. So let's celebrate and then let's finish off Trump care for good. And that is this week's call to action. And we are back with my guest, congressional candidate Tolomarts. So since this is a podcast for and about the Indivisible movement, how do you see Indivisible and other grassroots groups like that kind of fitting into the, the way you're approaching your campaign?
1: Well, I think that they are an outlet right now for people's visceral response to the election last fall. And I think that what happens historically, having been involved in democratic politics for 30 years... People come out of caucuses, and Minnesota has caucuses also, and they feel engaged and they want to do more. But the block and tackling of political activity over the course of two or four years is an acquired taste. And so I think that what happens <laughs> yeah. is people go to a, you know, they go to an LD meeting and they sit through a rules committee where you get like two Democrats that in any other circumstance should be best friends and they're beating on each other over minutia, and they get discouraged. And so what I think is nice about Indivisible is it provides an opportunity for people to get engaged and to do something with uh, this urge to to make change. Um, but you know, it can be outside of a, a formal structure. And I think obviously there's a lot of folks in Indivisible who are engaged in democratic politics, but there's a lot of folks that aren't. And I think like the the Indivisible effort in Issaquah recently, the one where they went and protested in front of – Dave Reichert's office. I actually heard about that on the city side because I chaired. Well, you the, might have heard about it on the Rachel Maddow show as well. <laughs> you made the news, yeah. Well, I as a as a city council member, I actually chaired the committee that oversees the police department, and so I I got to hear about plans and and how the folks who organized that event worked really hard uh, to keep it civil. I know that uh, Chris Petzold in Issaquah was one of the people who was very involved. Chris Petzold, in well. she is
0: the leader of uh, my group, uh, Issaquah, Washington's
1: eighth district. So. There go. Yeah. Shout out to Chris. Well, I think that that effort was really smart and really, I mean, the message that came out of that was so great. It was holding record accountable for his votes and it didn't become distracted by, you know, Infighting on the progressive side. And it was just, it was a very clear message. And it was also very clearly folks from the 8th District. You know, there's this lie that somehow we Democrats are, you know, that, we're, that we've got these like armies of, I don't know, somehow outside agitators coming in. And it's right. not. It's all local people that are concerned. And I think that Indivisible did a great job in that particular case. And I hope they stay engaged. And, uh, you know, I know they value their independence. And so they're not all going to just jump on on board of any one particular campaign just because it comes along. But you know, I enjoy talking to those folks and another reason that I'm getting involved when I am is I, I want to keep that spark alive. I want to keep that ember burning uh so that uh this passion that people have right now and wanting to do something about it uh sees them through the twenty seventeen elections, which are super important. We have a special uh, election coming up in Manka, November. Manka yeah, sure. Is uh she's doing an amazing job and and uh, also down in the 31st is, there's some critical races coming up and and I'm probably going to do some things to try to help out with that race with the with the organization that I'm building such that we can uh, help out a little bit. I mean it's a, there's a big effort out there and we're a, we're a we're a small uh, small team right now but want to help out. So so carry through the 2017 election and then as we get serious about 2018 make sure that all those folks who are who feel so passionately right now still feel like they're being heard and that they have a venue, and I want to be that venue for for their for them to affect change.
0: So you mentioned you've been involved in democratic politics for 30 years. Um, I'm sure you're aware that there is still something of a pronounced split among uh, along ideological lines following the 2016 elections. How do you see and define core democratic values in a way that might
1: unify uh, the party in light of that? Well, I think the core democratic values is that we believe that uh, – I believe and I believe most democrats believe. I can be careful about using the royal we. But um, <laughs> I think democrats believe that government can be a force for good. And I think that most republicans have a much narrower definition of where the government can be helpful. They believe government can be helpful in defense and in maybe in social issues that I completely – Disagree with them on, um, and that's about it. And so we really believe, and, and not every program is effective. And we, you know, we have to look at what works and what doesn't work. Uh, you know, throw twenty good ideas at the wall and keep the five that are great and discard the fifteen that aren't great. But government can absolutely be absolutely be a force of good. I mean, you know, the archetypal example is the interstate system, right? You know, somebody had to decide that that investment was worth it, but it transformed. You know. Many sectors of the u s economy, I believe unless I miss my guess that it was Eisenhower, a Republican who decided that that 's right that 's back when Republicans supported those sort of <laughs> those sort of investments that 's a different era yeah. but uh, so I, I think that that 's where Democrats across the board can agree, and I think that we can uh, have a lot a lively discussion about how much needs to change. Um, and, and where those changes need to occur. But you know I look at, in my own little corner of the world, municipal government. Um, it, there's a really interesting thing. If you look at the total, if you look at what government does, uh, take away the feds for a second and just look at local and state. And you look across the nation, and actually the spread from the most liberal to the most conservative states is only a spread from about 13 percent of uh, GDP in those states to about 9%. So the most conservative states are at about 9% and the, and the most liberal are at about 13%, which is not a small difference, but it also tends to be the northern states have a higher number because uh, a big part of their expenses have to do with maintenance, road maintenance and bridge maintenance and all the stuff that comes from being in cold climates. It's a lot easier to be at 9% in Texas than it is sure. at 9% in Minnesota. But the the message here is that government kind of does the same thing. In most of these places. And so uh, the basic functions of government most people want. It's just a, it's just a question of at the margins. Do you want to pay for, you know, women's health care? Do you not want to pay for women's health care? Do you want to pay for public education? Do you not want to pay for public education? And, uh, and those that's where the, where the, r- that's where the real fights happen. Right. But I think that most people and most politicians believe a lot of the core functions of government have to occur. Um, so I think that Republicans aren't as anti government as they like to say they are. Right? Their their petri dishes like Texas and Oklahoma, which like I said are at something like nine percent. So there's still tons of government in those states. It's just, you know, it does the things that, that they care that they care about and not things that we care about.
0: So Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, has its sights on the 8th. As you know, the, they believe it's winnable. Uh, Washington Democratic Chair Tina Podlodowski said on this show that she believes that the 8th is absolutely winnable. Uh, are you in contact with the state or national Dems at this point?
1: Uh, we've had a little conversations with with the DCCC, uh, had quite a bit of conversations with – uh, Tina and Karen Deal and uh Bailey and and some of the other democratic folks there have been some conversations uh around the folks who are out there looking at the 8th uh I believe I'm the only candidate who uh is an elected official right now who's looking at the race um uh Mark Mullett has endorsed me people ask me you know where's mark at because he's a he's somebody that uh has a has a statewide uh, presence mm-hmm. and uh, is is very active in the district. But he's, he and I came up together through the Issaquah City Council. So I, I, lo- I love that I got his endorsement. Um, so, yeah, so I am ha- having conversations with those folks. Having said that, I think this is going to be primarily an 8th District affair. In other words, this is about the 8th District um, with 8th, 8th District folks doing the heavy lifting uh, with other 8th District folks. So I want to need support out of Seattle and I think that's important but I think what's most important is to get in front of folks in the 8th and and be the candidate who knows their issues who's been to you know every every bar and library and uh in these towns to to talk to people <laughs> Just to be clear about that, and uh, <laughs> so you're not going around getting wasted with people. Yeah, I mean, no, not, not so yeah. far. That's not uh, <laughs> that hasn't been part of our campaign strategy. No, I find <laughs> that uh, uh, drinking tends to uh, inhibit your ability to hear people, not not enhance it. But uh, no, seriously though, getting getting to the the corners of the district, I think actually having a uh, such a gerrymandered district is in some sense is a gift. I think there are places in the country where you can run as a Democrat by just sort of having the, uh, you know, a cue card of issues that you just sort of say yes to a half dozen issues and, and you're all set. I think the eighth demands uh, a higher level of participation. I think it demands going out there and finding what's common uh, from one corner of the district to the other and uh, being able to craft a conversation with people around those issues and understanding for folks outside of Issaquah and Sammamish and, and uh, you know King County uh, where the pain points are. And so I'm really looking forward to that. I've, I've got enough time to do it right. And so uh, I'm just very excited about this race. Well,
0: Tolmarch, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, and best of luck, man. Stefan, thank you so much. It was wonderful to be on. And that will do it for this week's Washington State Indivisible Podcast. Please do keep the thoughts and feedback coming. I love hearing from you guys. Let me know if there's anything you'd like to hear covered on the show, anybody we should be talking to, et cetera. Email me at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, that is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Tola Martz. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.